Hey everyone, welcome to the Notorious B.I.G., our new podcast from Immune Competence. My name is Colin. I'm going to be your co-host here. I am the co-founder and director of operations over at Immune Competence. Check us out on the web, immunecompetence.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and on Twitter. Really excited. We've been working on this for a while. Excited to finally share it with you our own podcast. We've got some really cool guests lined up. I think this is going to be a really fun way to share some stories out with uh, with you, our listeners. And uh, let's get into it. First episode. Hey, what'd you think of that artwork? Pretty cool, right? I know our listeners are going to get that one. A uh, huge shout out. Check them out on Facebook. Pedromics, Pedro Mix, Pedro Velika, science cartoonist on Facebook, hooked us up with this awesome artwork for the cover of our podcast, The Notorious B.I.G. Who doesn't like a little immune humor? Come on. He's got some really great stuff, so make sure you check him out. So let's get into it. Episode one, first interview, and I'm really excited. I actually got to sit down with my immunologist. He's been my immunologist for the last couple of years, Dr. Oral Alpan from Virginia. Uh, Dr. Alpan is someone uh, I've gotten to work with professionally through my day job, and he became my immunologist when I needed a second opinion, a little extra help, and uh, we've had a great relationship ever since. And I'm really excited to announce Dr. Alpan has come on to our board of directors at Immune Competence and is helping with our medical affairs. I know, pretty cool, right? We started as a blog, a couple entries, just some ideas we wanted to get out there. Now, now we have someone who's in charge of medical affairs. So we've got some really exciting stuff coming up with Dr. Alpan this year. Uh, and he's going to talk a little bit about it. We, we get into his background, uh, really unique history, how he got into immunology. I'm always fascinated to hear how people got into immunology. And then we talk about his views on the doctor-patient relationship. You know, I've always wanted to ask a physician in a casual setting, you know, what, what's with the second opinion? Can I trust it? Should I trust it? How do you get the right second opinion? Who, when should a doctor, you know, how do I be a good patient in the doctor office? Uh, what should I expect from the physician? We get into some cool stuff. And he shares some really unique projects and things that he's working on. Uh, and I think it's going to be really cool. So you'll have to excuse some of our audio. It uh, it gets a little off. It's our first episode. I'm learning. Uh, stay with me. Uh, but uh, once we kind of get warmed up a little bit, uh, I, I think it's a really good interview, and I think there's some exciting stuff there. So I hope you enjoy. First episode, Notorious B.I.G. Let's get into it. I'll see you on the other side. But I think to start, I think one of the biggest questions people always ask, and this was one of the things I always saw when patients had a chance to ask an immunology, an immunologist or an allergist, why immunology? And I don't know if you want to give a little bit of your background, um, how you got into allergy immunology, and maybe we can go from there. Okay. So I grew up in Turkey, Ankara, Turkey. 
Um, I lived pretty much all my life there. Um, I got interested in medicine because of a um, family friend of ours who lived upstairs. He was a cardiologist, and what he did really intrigued me with cardiac catheterization, which was new at the time. Um, he took me to the hospital he worked at. He showed me around. Um, so that's what got me more interested in medicine. I always wanted to become a heart surgeon. Um, I actually, during my medical school years, did an elective in heart surgery in Edinburgh University for a couple of months. It was very fun. But what I was also very interested in was the mechanism of disease, how diseases affect people, and the underlying sort of workings of it, workings of how it happens. Um, and that's partly what led me to to pick the field of immunology because it was a lot of experimentation, a lot of research that was going on in immunology. This is back in early 1990s. Um, it was a rapidly growing field. It has slowed down a bit since then because there's a lot more we know now compared to back then. So that was kind of my interest. So I picked the field of allergy immunology not because I was interested in the allergy part, but because I was more interested in the immunology part of things. Um, I had a um, supervisor during my pediatrics residency, which I came to do in this country. And the reason I came to this country was research. I wanted to do more experimentation, and that wasn't available to the extent that it is here in Turkey. I had a supervisor during my training. He was a hematologist, pediatric hematologist. He had trained at the NIH. And I had told him about my interests, and there were no immunology division in the pediatrics department that I did my training in. Uh, so he kind of became my mentor. We did some projects with him. Um, his name was Robert Parker on platelets, because that was, was his area of interest. But he was sort of the door to the NIH for me. He introduced me to some people. I actually, during my first year of residency in the States, submitted some papers to the NIH Research Festival, and I was selected to go there. Um, that meant a lot to me. I was fascinated. And one of the things that was very interesting was when I was selected to attend the research festival with the, the presentation I had, they sent a thick book of the NIH labs. Um, these were all the investigators and a brief explanation of what they did at the NIH. It was maybe two, three hundred pages. It's a thick book. And they said, pick anybody you want to pick from here and we'll arrange interviews with them. So this could be a Nobel laureate. This could be someone who's written the most important textbook in immunology to anything. Someone who works on um, fruit flies. And they set up um, interviews with them just to talk to them. That was it. Not a job interview. Um, just to learn. Just to learn. And these people gave the time to these residents that actually came from all over the country. There were probably 50 of us. And they actually, um, after the research festival, 
um, posted an ad in the New England Journal of Medicine, it's on my wall here still, thanking the ones who have attended. So that was, that was kind of, you know, how I came to the United States and why immunology. So I think <clears throat> what's interesting is, so your neighbor, do you remember how old you were when you got to kind of? I was in high school. And you got to kind of shadow him. Yeah. See what he got to do. And that was uh, obviously a local hospital then in Correct, right. In Ankara, yeah. It was a military hospital at the time. Okay. Yeah. And then from there, you also did your your med school, right? Correct, right. And then after that, for your residency, you came over to the United States to study more. In Correct, right. Be really cool if you don't but mind. one thing I should add here is my dad is a vet, okay. but his specialty was animal science, and he taught genetics at the university. So I used to look at his notes. This is when I was in, you know, towards the end of high school, the first you know year or two of med school, and I remember in one of the classes when the in high school when the teacher was asking questions about genetics, I kept swaying into. Um, diseases rather than normal physiology and uh, my teacher used to tell me no no we're talking about normal states we're not talking about disease so I was you know trying to move fast forward and do stuff I was hungry for um, information at the time that also kind of shaped me the cardiologist that lived upstairs and my dad with his um, animal science background so, and then, <clears throat> did you know when you were going to medical school in college that ultimately it was to come to the U.S. and study kind of diseases and genetics in that form, or uh, how did you kind of make that decision? I made that decision probably in the fifth year of medical school. Okay. Medical school is six years in Turkey. What um, is it in the States, just for... It's two years college and four years medical school. Okay. Yeah. Same time, but the college part in Turkey, you after high school, you directly go into medicine, as right. opposed to here, you have to go do two years of college studies. Okay. And then I saw you did, was it your one of your residencies, and maybe this is where you met your uh, mentor that pointed you at the NIH, <coughs> was in New York. In Stony Brook, New York. In Stony Brook, New York. And now how long were you up there? For three years, for pediatric residency. And then you and I talked about a story, and I think uh, in context it's really important. There was another residency, I think you said you were doing, maybe this was uh, where you had a run-in with a mom from, from Long Beach. It was a woman who, you've told me the story, she came in, you were a resident, and she had three sick kids. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, you pointed out that uh, you learned a valuable lesson in that story. Yeah, that was in my residency, maybe towards the end of it. Um, there was this family that came, and again, I didn't know the patient demographics of Long Island that well. So this mom brought her three kids, um, and they, you know, they were they were a poor family, I think. Um, so they didn't have a lot of means. You know, it took her a lot to bring all those kids to the um, continuity clinic, and this hematologist was covering that day. Um, normally it's the general pediatricians that cover the clinic. So I examine the kids and I go back to the hematol my mentor and say, this looks, they have a viral illness. And he says, what are you going to do? Probably nothing. Um, so he said, you can't do that. 
So you have to understand this mom took these three kids, paid for their way, came here. You have to do something. You can't just tell them there's nothing wrong with you. It's just viral. So that's kind of stuck to me all these years. When people come to you with a problem, yes, there may be nothing to do and it might be all okay. But if they're experiencing symptoms, you have to um, treat it. And I think that brings up an interesting point because I think for patients with a primary immune deficiency, some of the common feedback is, I go to my doctor, they don't believe the symptoms I have. Uh, or they're willing to kind of pass it off as, oh, it's just viral, it'll run its course, you'll be fine. And I think um, that story, for me anyway, brings, um, it brings some validity to, okay, this happens. Um, is there anything we can do about it within the realm, you know? And then can we come back within six months and talk about it? Mm -hmm. I think uh, as a disclaimer, which I'll probably put at the front, as one of your patients who sees you for my care is one of the things we've done. And I think, I think in all the immunologists I've seen and all the feedback I hear from other folks, that's um, it's not something you see every day, and I and I think that story will resonate with a, with a lot of. So there's something interesting that I heard I heard at a talk. This was a talk given by Ralph Zinkernagel, who's one of the Nobel laureates. Um, I think his, he was giving this presentation at Oxford, England, and his statement was, "The patient is always right." And and I think <laughs> I've had a lot of people tell me that's not true. Uh, and I think a lot of people will resonate with that. And I think what's really interesting, and, and I think the patient is always right depending on the doctor, and more importantly, depending on possibly where the doctor can come from. You mentioned that you're very curious about, you were very curious about diseases and things of that sort. I think when a patient presents with an unanswered question, no diagnosis, um, how do you kind of approach that case? So, um, and we can take me for instance, you know, when, when I first came to see you, uh, was having a lot of problems, was dismissed by probably three or four physicians that just kind of said, you know, you'll be better in a couple of days. Mm. How, do you, how do you start with a case like that when someone presents with you? So there's a couple of scenarios. One of them, you'll see patients with a known disease and a known treatment. The second scenario is the patients will present with symptoms that doesn't necessarily lead to a specific diagnosis, but if those symptoms are very, very objective, meaning somebody has, let's say, an enlarged liver, or somebody has bronchiectasis, lung problem, cardiac issues, things that are sort of um, discernible with tests or physical exam, then I try to dig in further, sometimes leading to even um, genetic workup on patients. Um, and there's patients who present with um, 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 a known disease entity, but the symptoms don't fit. And then you always have to ask yourself, is the diagnosis correct? But I come back to the statement that I made to you in the beginning, which is the patient is always right. So unless the patient is lying to you, um, malingering, we call in medicine, you have to kind of understand the source of what's happening. If somebody comes, like you stated, runny nose, do you feel they have an infection? If the patient thinks that they're having a sinus infection, you may think otherwise, but a simple thing you could do is you can culture them. 
uh, do a, a nasal swab, for example, get a culture result, at least there would be something objective you can sort of um, point to to the patient, you know, a couple of days later saying, here's what we did, you know, I took your symptoms seriously, this is what the culture results show. I actually had a patient with an immunodeficiency that I saw several weeks ago. She had finished the course of antibiotics, the similar symptoms started. I thought it was viral, the patient think it wasn't. So we cultured the patient twice in a row, and both results came back normal, flora, and um, gradually the patient's symptoms subsided. But this is taking the patient in seriously and you know, doing the due diligence to show them that you know, it is what you think it is and, and it is nothing else. I think that's very important. When you first come in with a strange case as a patient, and all of a sudden you go, well, hopefully it's something simple, right? It's kind of what we all hope. Um, but then you get to the day, you get through the testing that says this is a, a primary immune deficiency. You know, this is common variable immune deficiency. Here's what this means. Hmm. I think the first thing we do as patients, even though we're told not to, is we go home and Google. What's common variable immune deficiency? Oh, my God, this looks serious. Uh, and I think that causes patients a lot of times to go, I have to go get a second opinion. What? What do you tell patients in that situation when they decide, I need to go get a second opinion? And maybe the second opinion says, I, I disagree. How, what does a patient do? Because I think it puts the patient in a really so, awkward spot. Yeah, so a couple of things. First of all, you need to be able to say to patients, if you don't know something, I don't know. Right. So you need to establish that with them. If it's a disease that fits into your expertise... I tell patients that I see a lot of cases like this. I treat patients with immunodeficiency, so I know how to manage these symptoms. Um, if I'm diagnosing something very, very serious, if it's not diagnosed but it's in the process, I tell them not to Google things. I give them my email address, and I ask them to ask me questions while that process is happening rather than Google. Um, for second opinions, I'm open to that. I think it's always useful um, because it's very difficult for patients themselves to go find a good doctor out there. So the definition of good varies. Um, and sometimes um, patients bump into good doctors just by chance. Um, so when somebody comes and says, I'd like to get a second opinion, I'm completely open to it. Even, if, even though I know that that second opinion may not give them the answer. I try to guide them with the second opinion. I say to them, here's some names that I would suggest that you go to, and you could choose to go to the ones that you've identified, but I still try to direct them in the right path. I think for a new patient, it can be tough when they first present at a doctor or they start seeing a specific doctor. How, how would you tell a patient on, on your side um, how do you establish that relationship with a physician? I mean, and maybe it's what questions can they ask? Like, what's the best way for us to touch base? You know, things like that. Any advice you would give to patients? So I think the first one is um, to ask to the doctor if this area that the patient is being treated for is an area of expertise of them. Um, that needs to be established. So the answer could be yes, the answer could be no, or the doctor can be very vague with it. So the patient needs to understand that. Number two, the patient needs to understand how involved the physician will be and also how to communicate with the physician about their issues. Um, I think those two things will kind of 
give an idea to the patient um, what kind of a relationship to build with them. But most of it happens over time, the building of trust. Right. And um, it also relates to how much communicating the physician is with the patient. But again, this is very, very difficult. You can have a, a physician that communicates a lot with the patient, but it may not be doing anything right. for them. Or you may have a physician that doesn't communicate much with the patient, but might be prescribing or um, giving the patient appropriate care. Unfortunately, th that happens with time. And I think, yeah. I think with a lot of patients, too, it's what do you want, right? It's do you want that uh, bedside manner of we stay in touch, we mm -hmm. communicate, or do you want to just check in when you're sick or, you know, or, or do you think, want it to be yeah. once a year? So with patients with prime, like, um, clearly established primary immunodeficiencies, I think it um, lies down boggles down to a, dealing with a competent physician. Okay. So the bedside manners, how available, of course availability is important, but competency is probably the most important thing. So there's physicians that I dealt with with my own family members that they were not as readily accessible as I make myself to my patients, right. but I know the physician was competent, and when I went to see him um, or her for um, the treatment for my family member, I know the, the my family member was getting proper care. Right, so I think I think I hear another good best practice for patients is do your research. Correct. Know who you're showing up with. And if you know who you're showing up with and then you ask that question of, it, now that I have a clear case of X diagnosis, is this your specialty? You know, what are kind of the expectations on both ends? Um, I've heard from some patients that Sometimes it just doesn't work with a doctor. And maybe uh, uh, the doctor or the practice may tell them, I can no longer see you. Uh, is there a time when you think that's appropriate and it may be best for a patient to be recommended to someone new? I have never done that. Um, I have sent patients for second opinions, for consults to my other colleagues to help out. But I've never in my career told a patient, I can't help you go elsewhere. So I can't answer that question because no, I haven't and, done it. And that's great. And I think um, I'll kind of in this section with one of the questions we're really trying to explore is what is a good patient? So a patient that comes in uh, on your side, what's a, what's a good patient look like? So I treat everything. So I treat um, people with very, very minor problems. I treat people with very, very complex problems. I treat very poor people with no insurance for free. I treat very rich people. So I treat everything. So um, I don't typically pick. Picking becomes a problem, and here's why. If I were to pick, I only treat a certain subset of patients with CVID. Then what I'm doing is I'm making myself unav unavailable for people who really need diagnosis. I have patients that get referred to me from Manhattan because the rheumatologist at one of the premier institutions in Manhattan can't find an immunologist to see the patient for treatment recommendation because after reviewing the files, the patient didn't fit the box. So I have not made myself a protocol physician in per se. Um, 
And I don't think that's the right way to do things unless you're doing research. Okay. No, I think, and I think that's a good uh, kind of a, a establishment between the two of, of seeing patients versus some of the research that's happening out there as well. Um, I want to go back a little bit to the research and lab side because I know you talked a little bit about that this is what really was kind of your fascination. Mm -hmm. And so you, um, when you and I first met, I was literally in this room probably four four or five years ago, but you started started a lab. You you also Mm -hmm. run a lab here called Amerimune. Can you talk to me a little bit about getting that lab started, why you decided to Mm -hmm. do that, and maybe some of the great work you guys are doing now? So when I was a fellow at NIH, when I was doing my allergy, immunology fellowship, I got exposed to immunology to the depth that very few um, people do um, while they're doing their training. I chose to stay for another three, four years at the NIH, did research asking the question, how does the immune system function? So we were experimenting on mice, pigs, sheep, asking very, very fundamental questions. A lot of this required using cutting-edge technology. I was also introduced to the laboratory when I was at NIH, which was applying this cutting-edge technology to clinical care. And it was moving every single day forward with new assays and new ways of looking things. I come out of NIH to practice, and I realize everything is static. Things aren't moving forward the way they should be. Cookie-cutter assays, off-the-shelf assays, trying to treat people with immunodeficiencies, when I came to Virginia and started seeing inpatients that you know at Fairfax Hospital, I was introduced to a colleague of mine, Jack Bleasing, who um, is at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, probably, in my own personal op- opinion, the best clinical immunologist in this country. He introduced me to his lab, which I think is the best in the world, in um, diagnosing patients with immunodeficiencies. Great lab. I visited them a couple times. I you know, started using their services by sending samples from Virginia to, um, to, to Ohio, but soon realized that um, bumped into insurance coverage issues because it's a different state and large institution. So around this was happening, one of the people that I worked with at the NIH was retiring um, after, I think, 30 years in government. She had a kid in college, another two or three years to go. She wanted to pay for his college, so she said, I need to make some money for a couple more years. I'll come and help you start a lab. And we did. And this is something that I could not have done without her. So we started, the, I think, the first commercial um, clinically-oriented immunology lab in the country. I divide labs into two categories in this country. One, ones that are in pathology departments run by pathologists have um, very little clinical utility. But also, there's labs that are part of clinical um, services, Cincinnati being one of them. There's a couple others around the country. Those are the ones that move forward because the tests, the assays that are developed in these labs get developed based on the needs of the specific um, clinical needs of um, the, the, the service. So we set up the lab here, and the assays that we run, even though are heavily influenced by the NIH, they became modified to meet the needs of the patient population that I see, which is 
chronic sinus infections, recurrent pneumonia, sort of the, the bread and butter immune workups that done that gets done in the um, clinical world. Lab has grown tremendously. Uh, I have three PhDs that work in the lab, um, a master's student, a couple of other student technologists, so people with different um, degrees of um, expertise. And we're always developing new assays, new ways of looking at things. Um, so we're trying to move the field forward um, in the more the bread and butter immune workup um, um, landscape. So what, and with all that research, what excites you that you guys are working on? Trying to figure out things, trying to figure out people who come and say, I have a problem and that doesn't fit the box. Like today, I have a patient admitted in an ICU in Manhattan. The blood is being shipped as we speak from Manhattan to here because we found something in her sample several weeks ago during an attack when she was in New York but not admitted to the ICU. And we wanted to replicate that finding. So we're getting a sample today to see if that's the case. If that is true, then we probably have identified the issue that's giving her this problem, which is um, um, eight to ten admissions to the ICU in the past three to four years. Those are the things that kind of you know, drive me to come to work in the morning yeah. when I wake up. So one of the things we were talking about is just, just patient care and diagnosing. You've got some fun projects going on right now that you're... Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the work you're doing in diagnosis and other things? So there's um, basically two parts to our lab. One of them is sort of routine clinical diagnosis of immunodeficiencies. And once in a while, when we bump into things that we think are exciting to us, um, and we actually had this with a patient where the screening immune workup is normal, but the patient's clinical presentation doesn't fit the workup, we decide looking at it in more depth. So people use the word personalized medicine these days, and they link it with genetics. It's actually not that simple. It doesn't stop with genetics, but it um, moves on into something that we call input-output. And I learned this um, definition from a researcher colleague of mine at Jackson Lab. His name is Daria Unutmas. He said, yes, the genetics will give you some idea on what might be wrong and where to look at, but it's only when you do the functional assays that you'll understand if that's the issue. So what I mean by functional issues, it's input and output. So input meaning you take cells and you give them a certain stimuli we call or input and you look at how they respond to it. It's actually very interesting. A lot of people don't do this, but um, I first saw this again when I was doing um, some assignments with my 11-year-old son in his... Um, um, Hopkins CTY course. We took life sciences and the first course is what is life? And one of the criteria for life is to respond to the environment. That's one of the characteristics of life. You know, in addition to having information system and cells. So I told my son, listen, this is what we're trying to go back and try to teach people saying um, you have to do functional assays to understand patients better. So coming back to the exciting project that I mentioned to you, we did a genetic workup on this patient that I'm talking to you about who has recurrent sinus infections but a completely normal workup. 
And this is actually a patient at some point um, was taken off of IgG replacement therapy because her physician, her physician felt she doesn't need it. And she was admitted to the hospital with sepsis on three different occasions. This is a 65-year-old lady. Um, we did a genetic workup on her, and it showed a variant. And the genetic workup results said it's probably not clinically significant. So we didn't think that the interpretation of the genetic report was correct. So we went up and set up a functional assay where we took our cells. In this case, it was our T-lymphocytes and we stimulated it with a specific stimulant that targets the abnormality that showed up on the genetic testing, and we looked at how her cells responded to it, and she doesn't make any response to that stimulus that you would expect to see in a normal person. So hence, her genetic disease is real. It's not a variant of unknown significance. It's actually a variant that is functionally important, and it's... Um, um, taught a lot about um, her to us. So these are kind of some of the fun things that I'd like to do where I'd like to identify clinical clinical scenarios that's real, um, but there's no answer to, and to go and figure those out. So with that, <clears throat> how do we get other doctors to start thinking like this? I will see. So, <laughs> so this is very difficult. Yeah. This is extremely difficult because I give seminars, I explain these, sometimes doctors come up and say, we don't see any patients like that. So part of me wants to say, get up and say, well, then you're not practicing. I see physicians after um, presentations that I give ask the first question in the auditorium is, what's the cost? And I say to them, that's a very valid question, but it should have been the last question, not the first question. Can you ask me a more you know, intelligent scientific question about the presentation? It's very difficult to imprint this into um, um, into physicians' mind. This is a very, very difficult process. So one of the things that we started to do is reach out to our own colleagues, allergists, immunologists, kind of replicate what we've done here with them so we could change their thought process, which will take time. Um, there's no fast forward on this. Um, so I think that's going to, if I go back and ask, what has my contribution to the immunology and clinical immunology field, I think it's disseminating what I have established here to um, um, across the country. That's probably going to be the most important thing. But once it goes in, it'll be interesting to see in the next, you know, three, four years how their thought process is going to change. Right. And if you do this across the country... Well, I think a lot of times doctors ask, the financial question, right? Um, I've had doctors ask me, well, we can do that test, but there's a cost to it. And it's like, well, th this is my health. I'm fine with the cost. We'll figure that out. Um, but I think one of the, the really fascinating But the answers to that question you ask when doctor says that? Yeah. So there's three people that determine cost. You, right? You have to decide if you right. want to do it or not. The insurer, right? Like Blue Cross Blue Shield, right. blah, blah. And politicians, the doctor doesn't. Right. So the doctor's job is to say, hey, Colin, you need an MRI. That's it. The doctor's job isn't, well, if I order an MRI, I'm going to get a red light from the insurance company. Right. But a lot of times, it, you know, it boils down to the doctor saying, oh, I'm the gatekeeper here. No, you're not. 
You order whatever you want to order, whatever is valid. Let the insurance deny it. Let the politician deny it. Let the patient say, I don't want to do it. But, but you have to give them your medical judgment. That's it. Well, I think what would be interesting with the IOC project is for the doctors that are asking those questions, the financial questions, is there, what are the costs that it's saving on the patient side that we don't see? So that's the area. So I thought very, very difficult on that. So everything I do is very expensive. So I don't even know what kind of a light I have at the insurance companies. But one of the things that I realized in patients who I treat with chronic sinusitis, one of the things we see is, well, here's a good example. I'll give you a better example. I got referred a patient from Manhattan for low IgG2. The doctor wanted to start IVIG because the patient has fatigue, she gets sick a lot, blah, blah, blah. So I work her up at the flow and stuff. Nothing really shows up. Costs $1,000 or whatever, something like that. So patient ends up coming here, but I realized I realize during the you know, discussion that she has recurrent squamous cell cancers of the skin. She's 62 years old, young. Um, we do a genetics workup, let's say $20,000. So, so far my cost has been $21,000. And she has a mutation in a gene called cyclin-dependent kinase. So we look it up and we try to understand and we realize it might be related to a molecule called mTOR. So we do some assays in the lab. Her mTOR is sky high. So we decide to put her on serolimus, dead cheap. So cancer goes away, fatigue goes away, kidney disease goes, she has kidney disease. She was losing phosphorus. So if I had put this patient on IVIG, just the first year's cost would have been... Oh, uh, several hundred thousand. But I was expensive for her. I cost right. her... was for my flow, $20,000 was genetics. But did I do cost savings? Yes. Absolutely. Is the patient healthier? Yes. There you go. So someone will come and say, well, that's one out of 50 or 1,000. Well, you don't know. You haven't worked anybody up. Right. And there's other examples. Right. And the nice thing after this one is, the, the so I go back to the person in Manhattan, I say, here's what I did to your patient. So now he refers me patients from New York say, go see Dr. Alpan, because he cures cancer. <laughs> I'm serious, patients show up here saying, he said you cured somebody's cancer. I'm like, that's correct. But when he says that to the patient, they're going to come here no matter what. But let's take a step backwards. (laughs) (laughs) It's correct, technically, but... (laughs) Yeah. Anything else maybe we're missing that you want to talk about? Favorite book? It's an important one. And best piece of advice anyone has given you. I think they're linked. So favorite book. I like reading biographies a lot. Okay. I don't like reading fiction, even though I like watching fiction movies. But my favorite book is Steve Jobs written by Walter Isaacson. And the best piece of advice that's given to me is in that book, it's about focus. And it's about um, what the definition of focus is. It's um, being able to say no to things. What do you do outside the office? Any hobbies? The most fun thing I do is take my son to his soccer games. I love watching 11-year-olds beat each other up in the soccer field. I love it. That's funny. 
That's funny. No, I, I, you know, I think, I think a lot of times when we talk with doctors, they don't necessarily see, we don't get to see the other side, right? Yeah. We think there's the the man behind the curtain, and you're just kind of in the in the exam room, and, mm-hmm. and uh, don't see that. Um, so. The other thing is, so my daughter's a violinist, um, professional violinist, um, and actually, I wasn't big in classical music before she started playing violin at the age of five, four and a half, five. So I kind of grew with her in that um, um, sort of um, specialty. I love listening to um, um, classical music and especially violin. And it gives me, you know, if that's probably one of my hobbies. Anyone it, outside your daughter that you listen to? Oh, lots of people. Right. But what was one? The, I'll finish with this. What, what was really interesting is so one one day she so she goes to Juilliard. She graduated recently. So Kennedy Center here in D.C. has um, something called the Millennium Stage, and one of the things that they do is they invite quartets or um, chamber music groups from Juilliard. Yeah. These are students every year, and they give a concert. And so my daughter's um, chamber group once gave a you know, concert here in D.C. We went and watched it. It was great. But what really gave me fun and excitement, we, came, we went out to dinner, we came back to our house, and at midnight, so one student had the cello, my daughter had the violin, we had a piano at home. They started jamming. A whole bunch of classical cases that was beyond... Um, real. What's ex- what should we as patients be excited about in immunology? Is there anything on the horizon or anything you think that's going to be a next step that we should start watching or, or could be the next big thing? Um, this is an interesting question. So, a couple things. One, diagnosing new immunodeficiencies is a very hot topic right now. Um, so these are people who present with either symptoms that resemble simple antibody deficiency or these are people who present with symptoms with a complete black box situation and um, being able to figure out what genetic mutation is, writing a paper about that. But even though that part is interesting to me, um, in most instances it ends there. Right. It doesn't add too much value in how do you treat you know, the day in and day out patient who's having recurrent infections. Um, um, so I think that's one area that needs to be more research focused on. Unfortunately, that's not going to come from companies because um, that's not a focus of them. That's going to probably come from either academic centers that have interest in general primary immunodeficiencies and their management, and maybe also the, the private practice world. Once we... Um, sort of give them the, the toys and the tools to be able to dig in. Um, there's a lot of excitement that's happening in the cancer world, and this is something that we've even been involved with in our lab, developing new assays. There's a new treatment called CAR T-cell therapy. These are for people with leukemia, lymphoma, and even some other solid tumors now, taking out um, white blood cells, re-engineering them, and injecting them back again so they can go attack the tumor cells that's been an um, amazing field, and it's growing rapidly. But I think there still needs to be focus on people with known primary immunodeficiencies and their treatment and better ways of approaching them.
You guys are awesome. Thank you for listening. Thanks for giving us a chance. Episode one, Notorious B.I.G. from Immune Competence. Colin here, guys. Uh, A couple quick things to wrap up. Just thank you again. But I want to hear your feedback. What'd you think? Who do do you want to see on the podcast? Is there a question I miss? Something I should have asked? Uh, Maybe we went too easy. Maybe you want to get into something else. Uh, Let us know. Email us at B-I-G at immunecompetence.org. Again, B-I-G at immunecompetence.org. We want to hear from you. How'd we do? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Feedback only makes us better. We want this to be about you. That's it, guys. Thanks again for tuning in. Episode one, Notorious B-I-G. We'll see you next time.